You are listening to America's Home for Stadium News and Information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Funds for a new hockey arena in the Tempe Mesa Chandler area of Phoenix appear nowhere in sight. Looming in the background is the S word, Seattle. We'll get the latest from SB Nation's Brandon Porter. We'll view some of the nation's great baseball stadiums through the eyes of Brad Horn, former PR chief of the Baseball Hall of Fame. He knows the stadiums well, including famed Doubleday Field at the Hall. The fifth quarter of Wisconsin football is unique in college sports, and it features the unique skills of the Badger marching band. Darren Ellefson had the toughest job of all, playing a 40-pound tuba. He'll share the experience. That's all ahead on this week's edition of Stadiums USA Radio. But first, the stadium speed with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman was in Calgary, Alberta this week, urging local officials to work towards getting a new arena built. Batman called the Calgary Flames' current home, the Saddle Dome, old and antiquated. That facility was built in 1987. Batman pointed to new arenas in Edmonton and Detroit as models to what Calgary could strive for. News has been relatively quiet of late about plans to build an $890 million arena in the downtown area. Officials at Penn State University have revealed plans to overhaul 23 athletic facilities on the State College campus, including the football venue, Beaver Stadium. Once completed, the nearly six-decade-old stadium could include a brick facade and see the seating capacity decrease from 106 to an even 100,000. The proposed changes would allow the iconic venue to host events such as professional hockey and soccer. Well, here's a first, a price drop at the ballpark. In Oakland, the A's have announced that beer prices have been lowered at the Oakland Coliseum. A's management report that a 20-ounce serving of one of the 77 beers on tap will cost $10 for premium selections and $8 for domestic brews. The Coliseum is touting that they offer the cheapest beer in the Bay Area. And St. Louis Cardinals fans have spoken. The team held a food challenge, offering fans the opportunity to pick the food that they wanted to see on Busch Stadium menus this year. The winner? Well, what else? The Redbird a breaded chicken breast sandwich tossed in buffalo wing sauce on a home plate bun with provol cheese and ranch dressing. The Redbird will be sold at the Double Play Tap and Grill and at the Proficient Perch located in Section 359. Bill, that's the very latest. Okay, thanks, Jeff. A little more turmoil on the frozen waters of the National Hockey League. And for that, we go to the Valley of the Sun, where the NHL's Arizona Coyotes continue to struggle with finding a new place in which to skate. The team is doing everything possible. They want to get out of their lease at the current Gila River Arena. A number of alternative sites have been explored there. And recently, we heard NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman 
Whitman step into the fray with a definitive message to the Arizona legislature, basically, come up with some money for this thing or we're going to have to move out. We're going to talk about it with Brendan Porter, the managing editor of Five for Howling, the Coyotes affiliate of SB Nation. We've had Brandon on before, and Brandon, last time we visited, it was over this very same topic. Let's start with the war of words between Gary Bettman and the Arizona legislature. I wonder if the strategy will work considering the relative uh, lack of success the team has had on the ice. Yeah, I think I think it was a gamble, and I, I also think to some degree some of the the comments made by Commissioner Bettman are being a little bit overhyped as some sort of ultimatum. That's been kind of the buzzword that's been thrown around, and I think he kind of walked those comments back the next day, referring to their commitment to the Phoenix area, and they're very bullish about the market in general. Um, and it's been very consistent since a couple of years ago when. The original 15-year agreement between this current ownership group and the city of Glendale was voided by the city of Glendale, that the NHL considered that sort of a deal breaker for any sort of future relationship between the Coyotes and the city. And I, I don't necessarily think you can blame them for doing that after you know they thought they had a long-term agreement worked out with the city. They had gone through all of the hurdles, a lot of hurdles to make that happen, gone through the negotiating process, and then they had the rug pulled out under them essentially – and so I think that the letter that Commissioner Bettman sent out is more assertive than anything we've seen recently from the NHL, but it's also not tremendously out of sync with what the NHL and what the ownership group currently has been saying for the past few years now. Brendan, remind us exactly how old the arena is in Glendale and how long the Coyotes have been in it. So the arena itself is uh, opened in 2003, midway through the 2003-2004 season. Mm -hmm. And so the Coyotes moved in as the tenant of the arena, and it was basically built with them in mind. And so they've been there for uh, about 14 years now. So the arena itself is not that old, certainly not by uh, by modern standards. Obviously, the sort of the timeline for um, how long an arena is considered kind of current and up-to-date is much shorter than it used to be. But even... By those standards, the arena is not terribly old. So the team draws from the East Valley, plays in the West Valley. Why have they not been able to build an additional fan base in the West Valley? I think some of it just has to do with the, the natural growth of the West Valley. The East Valley, with cities like Tempe, Chandler, uh, Gilbert, Mesa, have been around for quite a while and have been really kind of the first wave of development in the Phoenix area in the 90s when the area really took off. And so it's not necessarily a matter of the West Valley not being able to grow. And in fact, that's where a lot of construction is going on currently. It just hasn't caught up to where the East Valley is at this point in time. And because of that, where you have a lot of the settled wealth uh, in the Phoenix area is in the East Valley. And there's a there's a great article uh, that I really like to plug from uh, last week mm -hmm. by Craig Morgan of Arizona Sports, who's really had his finger on the pulse of this thing for a long time. And he really dove into the nuts and bolts of where the Coyotes fan base lies. And one of the things he found was that of all of the Coyotes premium season tickets, so the most expensive ones that are on the glass, that are you know in the lounge and the suites and all those you know very high-end sales packages, sure. about 77% of them um, are for residents in the East Valley. And so as a result, you see that there's a very large number of people coming from the East Valley that are paying those high prices 
higher prices, I guess I should say, because they're still actually still pretty reasonable for as far as season tickets go. But the most expensive packages are going to people who are in the East Valley. And that's just kind of the way the Phoenix area has been for the past couple of decades. Brendan, the Coyotes have struggled on the ice. There's no question of that. How much has that impacted the sell here as far as the team is concerned? I think it's a definite problem for the for the ownership group. And I think part of the other issue is that the Coyotes are now engaging in a rebuild that they should have started several years ago. I think that the, the run to the Western Conference Finals in 2012, which was really special, really exciting, really fun to watch from a fan perspective, the downside of that is it also, I think, kind of masked some of the underlying problems that the team had not really addressed they still had some consistent problems at center. They still had some consistent problems on defense, and they were relying a lot on their goaltending to kind of bail them out in a lot of games. And so when those things that are helping you get there kind of overperform aren't happening or just aren't there this season, you tend to struggle more. I think anybody who's looked at Arizona sports this year has known that it's just not been a great year. Uh, the Cardinals did not play particularly well in the NFL. The Diamondbacks had a dreadful season in uh, Major League Baseball. And the Suns have had a down year in the NBA. And so mm-hmm. as a result, the Coyotes are had a really missed opportunity to, to be that kind of competitive team in a Valley sports landscape that was largely starved of it this past year. And the fact that they aren't able to do that, I think, is definitely hampering their ability to Uh, field a lot of ticket sales. Well, Brendan, it's fascinating. We'll see how it all plays out and expect a call from us here down the road as uh, we keep up on this and see exactly what happens, what the legislature does, and somebody's going to have to come up with some money here, so we'll find out if that person steps forward or that entity steps forward. Brendan, thank you as always for the visit. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, when we return, we're going to talk ballparks with former Vice President of Communications at the Baseball Hall of Fame. We'll take a swing at that next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. We love to talk with people who know about Major League Baseball stadiums, and this gentleman we're going to visit with knows them very, very well. Brad Horn, a name long associated with the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. He was the PR chief there for a number of years. He worked in the Texas Rangers organization. Today, he is a distinguished lecturer in the journalism school at the University of Florida, and a guy who has a lot of friends, let me tell you. Brad, it's great to visit with you, and uh, this is something I've looked forward to for a long time, and I think our audience
audience, which uh, goes around and checks out stadiums throughout the country, would love to know some of your favorites. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you about one stadium that I'm sure you know well, and it is not a major league stadium, but it has in the past hosted major league teams, and that's Doubleday Stadium right there in Cooperstown, right where you worked for a number of years. Can you tell us about that place? We've never had anybody actually talk about it. Absolutely, Bill, and it's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners today. I don't think there's a better topic in all of sports than to talk about baseball stadiums. (laughs) And when you talk about the 30 major league clubs and the evolution of ballparks from uh, over the years of their design, one stadium has withstood the entire test of time And as you mentioned, that's on Main Street in Cooperstown, New York, the timeless, classic, and legendary double-day field. I think for a baseball fan of any age, uh, a a chance to walk into that uh, green diamond on any summer day is the epitome and the uh, top of the mountain for a baseball fan to see what baseball in its purest form looks like and to think about almost 80 years now of baseball history that's been played on that stadium in Cooperstown, New York. When we talk about stadiums today, we're painting with a very broad brush. What stands out in your mind? What type of park appeals to you the most? So I've seen, Bill, as as you have, uh, ballparks go from just trying to fit within a space and fit as many seats as possible within them to stadiums that are now designed for the modern convenience and comfort at any luxury possible. Uh, To me, stadiums that are of most enjoyment are those that keep the emotional origins and attachments of a fan to the game. And by that, I mean that the seats are not designed in such a way to focus purely on comfort, but to give fans the best angles. I love tight, sight lines around diamonds where uh, you can walk around a ballpark and put yourself in a seat in the ballpark and see the field from every angle. I think that stadiums that capture the uniqueness of field dimension as a top priority over uh, just a, a cookie cutter dimension where the concourses can be as wide as possible are really great. And by that, I mean that two of my favorites, AT&T Park in San Francisco Mm. and Minute Maid Park in Houston, both deal with a very uh, challenging issue in left field where they have to work within the footprint of how the stadium was designed. Uh, But they've done it in such a classy way that that's such a unique feature. And of course, balls fly out of Minute Maid Park in Houston quite regularly. But there's a great balance between modern luxury and, and historic Uh, natural element of the baseball stadium. So I think stadiums are fascinating in their evolution. Um, I love the ballpark in Arlington where I worked for many years with the Texas Rangers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hard to believe that that's a stadium that voters have now agreed that a new stadium should be built uh, there in Arlington when that stadium is uh, just over 23 years old, now 22 years old. So that's hard to believe that stadium shelf lives are what we're looking at today. Um, But that's part of what makes baseball so unique comparative to football or basketball. You'll go to a baseball stadium, you'll go to a game purely to see the ballpark. And, And I don't think that that happens in any other sport. 
the influence of television on stadium design today. We're seeing television. There's so much money that is involved. It is a true, legitimate revenue source. Now we see a new generation of baseball stadiums that has to be designed to accommodate that. So uh, how much is television itself in HD influencing stadium design today? Well, I, I think that's a, a, a very astute point of how stadiums are shaped. Baseball has an issue with pace of game and the reasons why people enjoy the sport in person. Um, baseball's become a leisure activity to go to the ballpark and enjoy these excesses and modern conveniences. But the game has never been as enjoyable as watching it on television because of that high def capability, because of the camera angle. So I think that even from my time working for a major league club, the high first and high third and low first and, and you know, uh, all the different camera angles and positions mm-hmm. were designed when the stadium may have been built in that case in the early 90s, but still as an afterthought. Now, Every inch of that ballpark is designed with a camera in mind. So uh, it's designed to bring that experience into the living rooms. And um, baseball, as all sports know, that that revenue from television money or from streaming now uh, money is what supports their endeavors far more so than actual attendance at the ballpark. So uh, I think that demand and the expectations, both such that team owners and and teams have to build with television in mind. Well, Brad, it's fascinating. It is wonderful to visit with you. Continued success in your work at the University of Florida. I would love to sit in on one of your lectures. I know that the students there are uh, learning an awful lot from you, and I know they're enjoying the experience. So let's invite you back for another round here in the future. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Bill, as has been my pleasure. I much appreciate the opportunity, and you're always welcome here in Gainesville. Brad Horn, who is a distinguished lecturer in the journalism school at the University of Florida, longtime associated with the Baseball Hall of Fame, also heavily involved in PR. We didn't get into that, but Brad has his own public relations agency as well. Now, stay tuned. We'll be coming back with more of Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation. Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Time to talk shop once again. And here we go. We're going to examine the week's stadium headlines. For that, we turn to Mark Madoran, president of Stadiums USA. All right, here we go, Mark. Boy, I wish I could have been with you when you visited Marlins Park in Miami to uh, witness for yourself the USA competing in the World Baseball Classic. Tell us about the event and tell us about how the park worked as a host site. Well, the event is hard to describe in simple terms. 
when the Dominicans play, it's absolute insanity. <laughs> the ballpark is full. The noise level is absolutely unbelievable. And there's chanting and singing and cowbell playing and whistles going off and air horns and any form of noise making that you've ever heard in your life goes on. <laughs> the Marlin Park people did a great job in keeping it all under control. And it probably wasn't easy. Most of the Dominican fans come early, they stay late, and they stand most of the game, and they are really into what's going on. The park is one I had not been to, so I appreciated the opportunity to take a look. It has a, a retractable roof. The stadium plays a little big, but it's just a great place to see a ball game, and I was delighted to go there. Now, a couple other comments. The World Baseball Classic people didn't think through what happens on the day when there's two games in a day and we have an extra inning ball game? Because that was really a mess. Clearing out the stadium from the first game and getting ready for game two, that was a real difficult thing. And the, the egress to the stadium for the people getting out, that was a tough thing because there were a lot of people wanting to get in. So they were fortunate that the crowds were much different between the two games. The first game was totally sold out. The second game against USA-Canada that day on Sunday uh, was a much, much smaller crowd. But um, it was still a great event, and I really enjoyed seeing it. And I'm looking forward to going to the next one. Um, Miami is a great place to see it. I love the stadium. The only thing bad I can say about the whole experience was the stadium is a difficult place to get to. The city streets are a little hard to negotiate. And um, they could work on that a little bit. But the, uh, the event was uh, really a classic event. And uh, you don't see too many really great baseball events until the end of the season. So it was fun to see this early in the year. All right, Mark, let's hop over to NFL football here. If the Raiders eventually end up in Las Vegas, as it appears they might well end up there, it won't be due to a lack of effort from Hall of Famer Ronnie Lott. Uh, Ronnie is continuing to urge Bay Area fans to apply pressure and stop the team from moving, and I guess that was the case recently, was it not? It certainly was. You and I both remember Ronnie Lott playing with the 49ers mm. and with the Raiders. And I think we both would say Ronnie Lott played every down 100%. He did not stop on any down, and he played uh, to the best of his ability. He didn't take any time off. And he's doing the same thing with this pressure on the NFL. But I don't think he has much of an opportunity to win this. Unfortunately, the decision has been made by the Raiders people that they're going to Las Vegas, and they've secured what they need to financing-wise. What Ronnie's looking to do now, and I haven't talked to him, but I can tell what he's trying to do, is he's going to work on the fans to try and get a hold of the owners and the owner committees of the NFL and mm -hmm. try and see if he can block the Raiders through the approval process. Remember, he needs uh, Mark Davis needs 24 of the 32 owners to approve the relocation in order to get to Las Vegas. And Ronnie Lott is hoping to block it at that level. I don't think that's going to really happen, but best of luck to him. I, I appreciate his sentiment and his heart is in it, but I just don't think the way it's going to lay out financially 
uh, his group has much of a chance to get this done. Mark, Tom Crean is out as the coach of the Indiana Hoosiers now following a rather controversial NIT tournament appearance. They played a game against Georgia Tech, but not in Bloomington. They went on the road to play it when uh, Indiana's uh, management turned down playing it. So this game was played in Atlanta IU lost the ball game, a situation where a higher seed ended up on the road. How is that playing? Well, let's just say that Indiana had the opportunity to host, and they declined. The Hoosiers felt that the NIT tournament game was beneath their standards. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) You were right. And we've both been to Assembly Hall, and we have our own (laughs) ideas about their standards at Assembly Hall. Yeah. Uh, There are some extenuating circumstances, though. We should give them the benefit of the doubt in a couple areas. Mm -hmm. Number one, the student body is on spring break, and they didn't want to have a game where it looked like the student section was empty. I doubt that would have ever happened. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is there will be construction, although there currently is none. There will be construction at Assembly Hall, but it hasn't started yet. So that really isn't a factor in the decision as well. The real reason is self-esteem and arrogance. Yeah. The Indiana people felt the NIT tournament was beneath them. Unfortunately, that really is where they belong. They went 7-11 in the Big Ten, 18-15 and 15 overall. At one point in the season, they lost 7-8. of eight. They looked good in the early season. In November, they had two big wins, one over Kansas, one over North Carolina. But the season... Uh, went downhill right after that, which is why the coach is no longer there. You know, Green had problems there, Mark. We know that. But this, this ends up looking like a sandbag job. And uh, I don't see where this helps IU Athletic Director Fred Glass. He can't come out looking good in this. I don't think anybody at Indiana could uh, pound their chest and say, yeah, we did the right thing. Um, I think it's clearly obvious that they made the wrong decision in this area. And I think uh, that's not going to help their recruiting any as well. Mark, let's roll back the clock and take a look at some important dates in stadium history. And uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green. This week in 1970, the NFL announces that scoreboards at stadiums across the league would now be considered the official game clock. Up until that point, game time had been kept by an official on the field. You and I both remember many times when the game clock and the official's clock were widely disparaging. (laughs) And we had a lot of controversy over how much time really is left in the game. But the NFL cleared that up many years ago. 1972, the NBA's Cincinnati Royals announced they are moving to Kansas City, Missouri. They would leave Cincinnati Gardens and split time at their new home between Kansas City's Municipal Auditorium and Omaha's Civic Auditorium, hence their new name, the Kansas City Omaha Kings, of which that no longer exists either. That's right. That is now the Sacramento Kings. And this week in 1996, the NHL's Montreal Canadiens play their first game in their new arena, the Bell Center. Now, before we get out of here, Bill, we have to go to our favorite segment. All right. Sounds good. Stadiums USA Trivia. Here we go. The 1992 East Regional Final between Duke and Kentucky is considered by many to be the greatest men's college basketball tournament game ever played. Mm -hmm. Christian Leitner hit the game-winning shot at the buzzer in overtime to give Duke a 104-103 win, a pretty classic, memorable finish. 
Where was this famous game played back in 1992? Was it the Kemper Arena in Kansas City? Mm-hmm. Was it the Spectrum in Philadelphia? Hmm. Was it Reunion Arena in Dallas? Or was it the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte? Well, it wasn't Kemper Arena in Kansas City. The Charlotte Coliseum was still in use. As a matter of fact, it was new. It had just come online two years previously, and I'm not sure about the spectrum. I don't think it was Reunion Arena, so I'm saying the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte. And. Excellent guess. Oh, no. But incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Where was it played? You you missed the fastball. The correct answer is the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Oh. Which is where the site of three East Regionals were played and two Final Fours. How about that? Boy, I would not have guessed that. That is a very good trivia question. That surprised me. Well, very good, Mark. Uh, You tested my abilities. I failed again. We'll try again (laughs) next week. We'll see how we do. Mark Medoran as we talk shop. Coming up, we march onto the field at Camp Randall Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin, with a former member of that great Badger marching band up there on SB Nation Radio. If you have ever visited the University of Wisconsin's Camp Randall Stadium, there's an aspect of the experience which really is special, and that is the performance of the University of Wisconsin Marching Band. And I doubt there's any band in America that has any more support than the Badgers band does. It is absolutely spectacular and a wonderful musician, a guy by the name of Mike LaCrone, who is the band director there. But we're going to visit with a man who on Saturdays toiled on the field. He carried a sousaphone, Darren Ellefson, a former member of the University of Wisconsin marching band and a man with strong shoulders and a strong back. Darren, it's wonderful to visit with you. I would imagine that actually playing in that band must have been a thrill of a lifetime. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as a I guess as as a band member, you know, you're, you're not used to, uh, you know, necessarily getting much praise from, uh, you know, home team fans and everything. But uh, everything is always super well received for us up there. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience and a great opportunity. We know how football players prepare for a game over a week's time. Bands have to do the exact same thing. Take us through the weekly schedule of how a band prepares for what they do. Yeah, technically marching band was a class that we all had to sign up for, and Mm -hmm. we all got uh, one credit for it. So basically it was four to five days a week worth of practices, uh, Monday through Friday. Practice itself would go for, I think they were an hour and 45 minutes, but, you know, you had time invested before, time invested after, warming up, kind of figuring out charts and formations and and all that good stuff. So, you know, you're looking at about a three-hour daily commitment to band. A lot of practice, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. 
Darren, you mentioned the name Mike, and of course, you're referring to Mike LaCrone, the legendary band director, for those who are just learning about this and haven't heard about him. Tell us the impact that he has had, both musically and from a community sense at that university. Mike is the Wisconsin band. He really brought the fun you know, back to the band and, and really kind of, you know, what happened is he, he showed up at, at a great time, <laughs> you know, I guess an opportunistic time in that, you know, the, the football team, I, I think had been bad. I'm, I'm, I'm no Badger football historian, but I think in the fifties, they had a really strong program and had won some national titles. And then, you know, once that had kind of gone away, the team was bad for, I think, probably 30 years, 30, 40 years, they were kind of a doormat. So, you know, people would go to these games and the team was terrible, you know, but they would still want to go and have fun. Mike, I think, saw that, you know, realized that, hey, you know, we, we've got crowds to entertain here. We're, we're not just going to kind of be this this little, you know, side figure for a game, especially when people aren't that concerned about the football team. So I think people really latched on to the band and that was kind of the culture that was instilled. So that when the team finally kind of turned it around, you had a, you know, you had a great product on the field. And you also have this band that everyone totally loves. Yeah, it was just a really unique circumstance that I don't think, in my experiences, there aren't many other schools that have that kind of love for the marching band. Mike LeCrone as a musician, of course, is an outstanding musician in his own right. We know that. But he's also an innovator, and he made a study when he started of what the other bands in the Big Ten did, and he took notes about what he liked and what he didn't like. And he instituted a maneuver to try to get more energy into the band. The maneuver is called Stop at the Top. Tell us about that signature, and and how is it to try to do that? It looks like you'd better be in shape if you're going to go ahead and stop at the top. Yeah, no, that's kind of what, well, it's definitely what sets the Badger Band apart. Traditionally, with marching bands, you have, you know, I think it's almost entirely at, at the high school level, and still the vast majority of college bands do what's called a roll step, and that's just kind of where you are more like a heel-toe kind of walk, you know, it, it allows kind of slightly different formations. And there's a few college bands that do, you know, more of a high step where the knee is getting significantly higher up, uh, you know, foot further off the ground. But Wisconsin, as far as I know, is the only band that has this, that stop at the top. Any any person who who is in the Badger band has had stop at the top driven into their brains, you know, for the rest of their lives. It's such a you know, it's such a staple. They're always yelling for the, the stop at the top. After the game is over, then comes the famed fifth quarter of Wisconsin football. Mm-hmm. That is the band. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the fifth quarter, I, I think it probably could be best described as organized chaos. We march out there, kind of go through some of the staple tunes, the, the fight song, you know, on Wisconsin play the opposing team song, and then it just kind of devolves into, um, you know, madness, I guess. You know, there's a, there's a set list of tunes that we play. Tequila, um, you know, the chicken dance. Beer Barrel Polka was always in there, which, 
you know, in, in the state of Wisconsin, is uh, that's pretty much the uh, anthem of the state right there. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's crazy. There's people just rolling all over the place on the ground, and you know, all still while playing their instruments for the most part. Darren, congratulations to you on this. I know it's a wonderful part of life, and I wish to thank you for taking time to share it with us and uh, yeah. take us through some of the traditions of the Wisconsin band. It's fantastic. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. Darren Ellison, a proud graduate of the University of Wisconsin. Hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned now. We have a full day of sports coverage ahead right here on SB Nation Radio.